This is episode 578 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we have a prophecy regarding a future invasion of Israel by a confederation of nations that will happen close to the end of time. And this invasion will be stopped by God himself on the mountains of Israel in a most dramatic fashion, like something out of the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah style. You really need to read it for yourself. It appears that a demonic entity named Gog, and I say demonic because he resurfaces again in Revelation 20. Anyway, Gog, from a group of countries we don't recognize at all today, will come down and invade Israel in the latter days. And the names of those countries with them are really quite strange, like Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Rosh, Gomer, and those from the house of Togamah, among others. Which, of course, leads us to ask a few questions, like, when does this take place? Is it happening right now with Hamas and Israel and those nations aligned with them? Or is this something that will happen in the future? And what countries are involved? Does the Bible talk about Gaza or Iran or Russia or even the United States? And if so, where? And what can we learn from all of this? So join us today as we look at those nations that will join in the future or maybe not so future invasion of Israel that is prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39 as we look closely at our future and especially the future of the United States and learn based on what's soon to happen, how important it is to leave Laodicea behind. We're in Ezekiel chapter 38, and um, uh, about the Gog and Magog conflict, we'll be dealing with 39 later on. I introduced this last week, and again, we talked about the uh, Amos 7-1 passage and stuff of that nature, but I want you to know, when it comes to end times, the certain events that we know about in Scripture always have a precursor. In other words, if I were to ask you when does the abomination of desolation take place? You would all know and say, well, it's in midpoint during the tribulation period. How do we know that? Well, we know that from the book of Daniel. We see that chronologically through the book of Revelation. Okay, when do the two witnesses show up? Well, they show up in the tribulation period, and we talk about that. When are the four horsemen of the apocalypse released? Well, there's precursors to that prior to, but they're really released during the tribulation period. When does the rapture take place? No idea. Uh, don't know any precursors to that. There's not. We can't really tell, but it can happen at any time. It's an imminent event, and when it does happen, then we know that certain other things take place. When does the Gog and Magog conflict take place? Don't know that either. As a matter of fact, that's one of those things like the rapture. It could happen at any time, but uh, unlike the rapture, we can kind of see the chess pieces moving together that could possibly lead to that. But there's no defining event that says, you know, this happens, and then you can expect the Gog and Magog uh, invasion to take place. Uh, some people believe it happens prior to the rapture. Some people believe it happens between the rapture and the tribulation period or the seven-year treaty with Israel. Some people believe that it actually happens during the first half of the tribulation where say, uh, the Antichrist has now secured Israel's safety and he's challenged by this confederation from the north and the east and the west and the south that invade Israel. It's possible and there's different ways to interpret this. But the question that most of us have when it's regarding this situation, especially after October 7th of this year, when this unprecedented event took place in, um, in Israel and this war going on and all the uh, drum rattlings and stuff of that nature is, you know, when this Gog and Magog invasion takes place, who exactly is involved? If we can kind of see the chess pieces that are moving together, maybe we can determine if it's something that's soon on the horizon. Then we want to know what actually happens. And some of the stuff that happens is really fascinating. And when you get to chapter 39, it is cataclysmic. And if that's true, I want to know when it takes place. I also want to know when it comes to who's involved, not only the countries out there that are involved, um, you know, is Egypt involved? Is Saudi Arabia involved? Is Russia involved? Is Iran involved? Is, is Turkey involved? Is, 
You know, are these proxies involved or is the United States involved? And if the United States is involved, is that laid out in Scripture? So the major questions we have when we're looking at the Gog and Magog invasion are, again, who's involved? We're going to cover that first today in some detail. Again, I'm going to try to slow down to do this. Then we're going to take it verse by verse, chapter 38, all the way to the end of that chapter. Again, I seriously doubt we're going to get through all of that today. Looking at, um, looking at what actually happens during this invasion. And in chapter 39, it will deal with next time, talks more about the aftermath of the destruction that takes place. It describes situations like in Zechariah that looks like a, maybe a nuclear exchange. And I mean, it's just, it's very contemporary. And with what's going on in the Middle East right now, it is uh, very apropos. So we're going to look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, some other passages together. And um, again, I've already introduced this to you when we talked about Gog last week. So here we go. This is a prophecy that was given to Ezekiel. And if you will notice, God is angry at this entity called Gog. Everything about this is God against Gog. Gog deceives the nations. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. He shows up again, Gog and Magog, or Gog from Magog. We find him here in Ezekiel 38. Last uh, week, we talked about the fact that God never introduces a character like this unless there's some sort of foreshadowing or precursor to it, and we don't see any of that in the, uh, the Old Testament until you look at the Septuagint, for those of you that weren't here, and then Amos 7.1 talks about Gog coming as a locust covering the land. And you can read that, uh, read that for yourself. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against this guy, Gog. Whoever God Gog is, is he a human being? Is he a demonic entity? Is he some sort of a demonic manifestation that inhabits and empowers certain humans to do things? Because we have Gog here, and then we have Gog at the end of the uh, millennial reign of Christ, where all of a sudden the armies are gathered together at the very end to do, we're going to look at those verses in a minute, to fight against the Lord one more time once Satan is released from the abyss, and those armies and the the entity behind that is called Gog of Magog or Gog and Magog. And that's when fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And so whoever this guy is, he has really irritated God. And it's almost like a person, demonic personification of the evil against God and his people. And so Word of the Lord comes and says, set your face against Gog. And then he begins to describe him of the land of Magog, wherever that is. The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Gog from the land of Magog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And prophesy against him, saying this, thus saith the Lord God, I am against you, Gog. Uh, excuse me, uh, Lord, uh, who exactly is Gog again? Oh, it's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Come on, Steve, how, how slow can you be? That's who Gog is. Um, that doesn't really help. It will in a few minutes. So, All right, so I got Gog, who's the prince of these strange names, and from this land called Magog, and you can actually look at an atlas today, and I don't think there's any country called Magog. Uh, today, but, you know, okay. What are you going to do? Well, here's what I'm going to do to Gog. I am going to place my sovereign will on him. I am going to chastise him and punish him, and I'm going to make him do what I want him to do. This is my action, God says. It's kind of like if you really, if you really look at the betrayal of Christ at the Last Supper, and, you know, Judas, of course, had made a decision to betray Jesus. Uh, the Jews did not want it to happen when they did because of the Passover, and they feared the crowds. And nevertheless, on Jesus' time frame, he's the one that pushed his hand. You know, whatever you're going to do, Judas, do it quickly. Oh, okay. 
You know, because God is sovereign in all these things, and God is sovereign in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion of Israel. Here's what he says, God speaking, I will turn you, Gog, around. I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean that Gog was looking in the opposite direction, doing something else? Was he thinking about something else? That all of a sudden he became like this trinket over here and this allurement towards Israel decided that's going to focus all my attention right now. Whatever it is, it gives the impression that whatever Gog wanted to do, that the Lord had other plans for him because he said, I will put hooks in your jaw and lead you out. If he would have said, I will put a bridle and a bit in your mouth, we would go, okay, you know, it's like he has really no choice. We're leading a horse here and kind of painful when that presses up against the top of his mouth and says, I need you to come this way. But instead, he puts this massive hook in his jaw where he has no place to go but follow God. I will turn you around. I will put hooks in your jaw and lead you out, but not just you, with all your army, your horses, your horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. But not just you, because there's other people that are going to follow you, other nation states. There's Persia, whatever that meant when Ezekiel wrote this. There's Ethiopia. And Libya are with them, and all of them have their military attire on, all of them with shield and helmet. There's this place called Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togermah from the far north and all its troops, and many people with you. At some point in time, there will be this confederation that takes place of these enemies of God who decide to invade Israel. And it's not just one man and one army. Instead, he's got this entire group of people that are coming with him. I received this this morning um, from Hal Lindsey. For those of you who do not know who Hal Lindsey is, he's been a prophecy pastor for, I don't know, my whole lifetime. He came to the forefront with a book he wrote called The Late Great Planet Earth way back in the early 70s. Every Sunday and every Wednesday, he sends out a newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it, I suggest you do. It's really short. Um, This is the one that he sent out this morning, talking, it's called Tenderbox Earth, talking about the situations going on in Gaza right now and how they fit together, could possibly fit together with the Gog and Magog um, invasion described in Ezekiel. Here's what he says. The trigger on a gun need not be large for the gun to be deadly. The Gaza Strip is 25 miles long and only 7.5 miles wide at its widest point. The Gaza trigger has been pulled. We do do not know yet the damage it will cause. So far, escalation seems to be the word of the hour. The Gaza's war has already escalated beyond the Middle East, drawing in Russia, China, Europe, and the United States. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and you will be praying for peace on earth. On Thursday, October 26, three men met in Moscow. The least credentials of these three was by far far the most important, at least for now. His name is Musa Abba Marzouk, an engineer educated in the United States who became a key leader of Hamas. If the terror group had a secretary of state, it would be Marzouk. He met with the deputy foreign ministers of Russia and Iran. Their stated purpose was to discuss Hamas's continual war with Israel. According to Ezekiel 38, Russia and Iran will one day lead a coalition of nations in a massive assault against Israel. God will intervene on Israel's behalf, not with an Iron Dome missile interceptors, but with his own mighty hand. Until the Islamic Revolution of 1978 and 1979, Russia, then the Soviet Union, and Iran had been highly antagonistic. That began to change with the revolution. The relationship grew much stronger during this century with Putin in charge of Russia. As the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, 
Iran has been the target of many sanctions from the United Nations, the United States, and others. But Putin's Russia continued to trade with Iran, severely limiting the sanctions' impact. Russia and Iran now maintain close military and economic ties. At the meeting, Marzouk said of Hamas, quote, We looked at Russia as our closest friend. That same day in the Middle East, U.S. F-16 struck, struck two facilities in eastern Syria, a weapons depot and an ammunition storage site. The Americans went to great pains to make sure there would be no human casualties. The facilities are used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. The affiliated groups had made 19 attacks against U.S. military installations in the 10 days leading up to the U.S. response. None of this should be news to you if you've read anything. Administration officials made it clear that they see those who are attacking American forces as proxies of Iran. Secretary of State Lord Austin said, quote, Iran wants to hide its hand and deny its role in these attacks against our forces. We will not let them. The 19 attacks against U.S. installations caused injuries and contributed to a cardiac episode of a U.S. contractor that resulted in his death. The United States had to respond, but did so in the mildest way possible. The Biden administration seems determined not to escalate the situation. Even so, the U.S. attack in Syria did cause an escalation. Israel's necessary ground incursion in Gaza will also provoke some level of escalation. Will Hezbollah, which is with its 100,000 troops and as many as 200,000 missiles, fully enter the fray from the north? Might Iran move directly against Israel, the United States, or both? For years, the Iranians have been practicing and planning assaults against U.S. aircraft carriers, with the Eisenhower carrier group headed for the Persian Gulf just off Iran's coast. Is it possible they might finally dust off one of those plans and give it a try? Planet Earth is armed to the teeth. Its leaders seethe with pride and anger. Pray. Do as the Bible says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. If it escalates and things get out of control, you will see in a few minutes that it will clearly fit the picture laid out for us in Ezekiel of the Gog and Magog invasion of Israel in our lifetime. He says, I will turn you Gog around and put hooks in your jaw and lead you out, you and your army, along with Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and the house of Togomah from the far north or the remotest parts of the north with all its troops. Many people are with you. So the question we have when we're trying to interpret something like this are who are these people? You know, wh what do they represent? I mean, Gomer, when I think of Gomer, what do you think of? Shazam! You know, I mean, that's all I ever think about, but there's obviously a group of people somehow identified with this name Gomer, so you can get your Bible concordance out, and you can our blue letter Bible or whatever, and you can go and try to find out exactly where these people are from. And what you'll do is you'll be brought back to Genesis chapter 10, which is the table of nations. Why in the world is it there? Why do we even care? You'll find out in a moment. And what happens is you have these various sons of Noah, and all of a sudden it talks about their offspring and who they are and who gave, they gave birth to. And we find out at the last verse of this chapter that the reason is why is they went into the world and they settled in nations. Let me just give you a few of them. Genesis 10, 1 and 2. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. So we'll go ahead and talk about the, a couple of them here. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talks about Gomer, Magog, Tubal, and Meshach. All right, I see that in, uh, in Ezekiel 38. Okay, so these are some of the sons of Noah. Good. Then a couple verses later, in verses 6 and 7, we find the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, Put which we find out is Libya. We find down here these two sons named Sheba and Dedan. 
We find that also in the book of Ezekiel. And why is this even important? Because when we get to the very last verse of Genesis chapter 10, this table of nations that is laid out for us for a reason, here's what it says. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. We had these sons, and these sons spread out from uh, where the um, ark landed, and they inhabited various areas. That's how the world got inhabited after the flood, when everybody died except Noah and his family. And where they settled became not necessarily nations like we have today, but where they settled became uh, the areas that are identified by their name. We also find a few more when we get to Ezekiel 13. We find we have these nations now that are actually invading Israel. And then we have a couple nations that are kind of backed off and watching what's going on, critical of the event, but not actually involved in the invasion. We have Sheba that we just looked at and Dedan. We have the merchants of Tarshish whoever those people are, and all their young lions. Merchants of Tarshish and their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder, gather your army and take booty? And so they're looking at this saying, I can't believe that you're doing this and invading here. We're not involved in the invasion, but we're concerned about what's going on. So who are these people? Well, you can study it. You can go back and look, and what they do is they trace these names, this heritage, to move it all the way back into, um, into various areas and land masses where they inhabited, and then um, you know, they can then take those land masses where they inhabited, superimpose a current map today, which maybe changed 50 years from now. 50 years, some of the countries we have today will be different countries then, but you superimpose a map over that. And so when it talks about these ancient people groups coming to invade Israel, we can see on a map exactly what nations make them up today. Gog, that's an individual. Gog, of course, is this, uh, comes from this land of Magog, and he's the prince of Rosh. So who is Gog? He's the leader of this coalition, and you will find out when you begin to study him more especially in the Revelation 20 passage, there must be either a demonic entity or a human being inhabited by a demonic entity, someone who is doing exactly Satan's bidding at this time. Because God's anger, I mean, really is kindled against Gog. He's the leader of Magog. And if you go back and look, you'll find Magog uh, was the area of the Scythians. Even Paul talked about the Scythians in 1 Corinthians. That makes up an area in Central Asia. Right now, if you superimpose the map over that, it's countries that made up the former Soviet Union that they gave up uh, during Reagan's uh, time. All the Stan countries, uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, you know, Afghanistan, and all those kind of countries make up Magog. We lay it on a, a map over that and go, wow, I see those countries that are involved. Prince of Rosh, Rosh has been historically identified with an area now of Russia. You had uh, the original Russia, you had the Soviet Union, which expanded into the Magog area. Those are separate nations now. So you have Russia, and, which is, uh, and then the former countries of the Soviet Union. You then have this Meshach and Tubal, don't know where they are, and then Persia, Ethiopia, and then Libya. And so when we look at Meshach and Tubal, superimpose a map, that's modern Turkey. That makes up the nation right now that is uh, shockingly anti-Israel. Persia is what we would currently call Iran. Ethiopia or Kush is modern Sudan, are the nations that are south of Egypt, in Africa, and Libya are put, is modern Libya and nations that are to the west of um, Egypt, including Algeria and Tunisia. And Algeria, I shared with you last week, has voted 100% that if they want to go, if their president or leader decides to go to war with uh, Israel, that they are totally fourth right now. We have Gomer, the house of Togomah. 
Gomer, of course, if you'll trace it back to a people group, it's the Sumerians. That makes up central Turkey. Then when you have the house of Togomar, that's what we call Mar uh, modern Turkey, north of, directly north of Israel. So a lot of these people groups are now centered in what is Turkey. Hal Lindsey and many others have been saying this for years, that if you want, a, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future in the Middle East, keep your eyes on Turkey. Same thing still applies today. Keep your eyes on Turkey. Here's a map, give you an idea of what it looks like. I shared this with you briefly last week. Okay, right there is Israel, which is kind of exciting. You go down here to this table of nations, you find the Arab League makes up all of this in the dark green. Um, the Sudan, you've got Libya and Algeria over here. Here's Saudi Arabia. You've got uh, you know, Syria and Iraq and the countries around here. The light green is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. There are all these other nations now that vote together and are economically tied together. These are all the Muslim-controlled nations, and Israel's right in the middle. You have Turkey, you have Iran, you have all the stand countries up here that we talked about, and then, of course, up here is, uh, is Russia. I shared this with you, which is a little easier to kind of understand, but um, this one you have, of course, Israel, you have Put and Kush and Persia and Magog, you have Rosh, here, of course, would be Meshach and Tubal, Gomer, all of those making up Turkey at this point. This is exactly how it says it's going to play out in the book of Ezekiel. If you'll notice the, uh, the news, we're uh, kind of moving into... Uh, the time of their, of the end soon. So, first question, who's involved? Those people are involved. I will also share with you that there's some passages in here that indicate the United States may be involved. And I personally, you can interpret these any way you want, I am firmly convinced in my own mind, in my own heart, that's exactly who it's talking about here, these passages about the United States. And it doesn't bode well for us. And why would it? I mean, we're so ripe for God's judgment, are we not? So what actually happens in this invasion? I mean, what's going on? What's the purpose of this? How does God respond when all this happens? And the best way to do that is basically take the passages in Ezekiel 38, one by one, and just go through them and, and make a few comments about them, see what they say, and see if we can pull in some other passages. So in the time we have left, that's what we're going to do, um, to see if we can figure out exactly what this invasion looks like and maybe line it up with what's happening right now and see if possibly this is a precursor to that or maybe God is just getting our attention. Who knows? Where the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog because he's against Gog, the prince of, uh, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Covered all that last week. For God now, this is God's actions. I, God, will turn you, Gog, from the land of Magog defined as Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So the commander or the influencer of all those countries, I will turn you around. That's why it makes you think that it's some sort of demonic influence because he is the Prince of Rosh, which is of Russia, also of Meshach and Tubal. So it's almost like this demonic power which is convincing the human powers to be to head in a particular uh, direction. I will turn you around. I will make you come by putting hooks in your jaw, and I will lead you out. God will lead Gog out. This is not a bunch of um, countries getting together and saying, let's pick on somebody when they're down. This is God's action. If you, and we're going to talk about this probably next week, but if you want to look how God does this, go to Romans chapter 9, and look what it talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And all of a sudden, he, he kept Pharaoh like he was, not letting the Egyptians go, or letting the uh, Israelis go. And the reason why is because God wanted to be hallowed through Pharaoh. We still talk about that today. This is not something that God has not done in the past. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaw, and lead you out with all your army, horse, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, 
Iran, Ethiopia, modern Sudan, south of Egypt, and Libya, west of Egypt, including Algeria and Tunisia, all with them, all with shield and helmet, all prepared for war. Very countries I just showed you on that map. Gomer, central Turkey now with all its troops. The house of Togomar, modern Turkey, north directly north of Israel, from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. You will find as we go through this, and this was most shocking to me, that there's not only the armies that are coming, but this massive horde of other people that are coming with them just out of anger and vengeance, it looks like. Because there's a clear distinction in Ezekiel 38 between these nations and their armies and this horde of other people that come with them. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. And then we want to ask the question, when does this happen? Has this already happened in the past? Not historically. Is it, uh, it going to happen now? Is it, it, when, when is this going to happen? Here's what he says in verse 8. After many days, you, Gog, will be visited. Really? By what? by a delegation from Israel, by the UN, by a demonic presence like it was with, uh, with Judas when all of a sudden the devil and the Satan entered him, that you will be visited. And everything, when you're visited, everything will change in Gog, and he will, be, he will see Israel as his plumb to be taken and decide this is the time to eradicate God and his people from the earth. When will that take place? Really simple. In the latter days, in the times in which we live right now, you will, that's future tense from Ezekiel's time, come into the land. Well, what land is that? It's really simple. It's a land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountain of Israel. You will invade Israel, but you're only going to invade Israel not prior to AD 70, but you're going to invade Israel after May 14, 1948, which for 1,900 years, Bible scholars never believed Ezekiel 37, this valley of dry bones, would ever be fulfilled literally until all of a sudden that happened. I mean, go read the pulpit commentaries, and some of the commentaries written 100 years ago, and they spiritualized all of that because they couldn't Im imagine Jews coming back into the promised land, and it happened May 14th. 1948, that those brought back, look that word up, it means to restore, to return, to be brought back into their original existence. Israel back in the land. You, Gog, will be visited by something or someone. And in the latter days, you will come against my people who are restored from the four corners of the earth, brought back into the land in their original existence as a nation and a people of God, gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now they all dwell safely, or in security, or with a calm assurance. Do they dwell safely because of the United States? They certainly don't dwell safely because the UN guarantees their freedom. Do they dwell safely because they trust in God? Not so much today. Israel is a very secular nation. Do they dwell safely because they figure they've been attacked six times and beaten every nation back six times and maybe they have confidence in it? So I have no idea. But you're going to come against those people who are not expecting it. You will ascend. You will come like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops. I shared with you last week in the uh, examples of Gog in the, in the book of Revelation that he's always described as coming in, in Amos 7, 1, as like a swarm of locusts obliterating everything, or in the book of Revelation, he's coming with so many people, they're like the sand of the sea, which is the imagery that God gave Abraham 
to describe how blessed he would be by his offspring. Watch this. Coming like a storm, covering the cloud, uh, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and troops plus and many people with you. I don't know if you've done a lot of reading and uh, followed a lot of the reports that are coming out of Israel, um, especially the new discoveries that they're making about the uh, horrible things that took place on October 7th. But the reports that have come out in the last 10 days are saying the most butchery that took place did not take place from the terrorists that first came in. They came in to eliminate the Israeli troops and to take control over everything. And, you know, their job was to, um, you know, to cause terror. But they left the gates open and they actually invited just any Muslim who wanted to go into Israel and destroy and pillage and whatever you want to do to please do that. And the whole most horrific events you hear about that took place on October 7th did not happen at the hands of the Gaza official terrorist. They happened at the hands of just regular, depraved citizens of Gaza who went in there realizing if I could bring a hostage back, you know, that I could get $10,000. I mean, it was, it's like these, these people had collective hatred and sanity and just invaded this land along with the professional soldiers. Kind of sounds like that's what happens here. That you've got the armies coming down and, hey, we're going to go take care of Israel. Well, come on, you can get your comeuppance too. And they're all going down there as a mob. What's going on? They will come like a cloud, you and all your troops, and in addition to that, many people with you. Thus saith the Lord, on that day it shall, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, Gog, and you will make an evil plan. Well, what evil plan are you going to make, Gog, about Israel? You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. This, I will go ahead and tell you, description of Israel is where most of the people who believe that this invasion takes place during the tribulation period get it, get it from. They basically say, well, you know, the only way Israel could live in peace was um, uh, if the Antichrist guaranteed their peace for seven years and, you know, began the 70th week of Daniel. So obviously this invasion has to take place, um, you know, during that time, which really doesn't make much sense because if the Antichrist is powerful enough, powerful enough to secure the safety of Israel during, the, during what leads up to the tribulation period, it seems like most of the nations at that time had no regard or respect for the Antichrist at all. So I just, we will talk about that when we get to it. I just want you to know that this is where a lot of that other interpretation comes from. I'm putting in your mind to go down there in your mind, they're defenseless. In your mind, they're living in safety. In your mind, you don't even think they're coming, and no one can stand against your massive army that's getting ready to invade them. So what's your intentions? Really simple. I'm going to take plunder and booty. I'm going to take everything that they have. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to stretch out my hand against the waste places, because that's what Israel was like, uh, until uh, that's what that area was like until May 14, 1948. I'm going to lay my hand, stretch out my hand against the waste places that are again the second time inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who've acquired livestock, goods, and who dwell in the midst of the land. So Gog is massing his army together. And he's getting ready to come down and absolutely to, to uh, destroy Israel. And as that invasion begins to take place from the north, from the east, from Iran, from the south, and from the west, these other nations look at this and go, wait a second, what are you doing? We're not going to actively get involved in this, but what you're doing makes no sense at all. And that's Ezekiel 38.13, a... Um, rather amazing passage. 
It says, Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, the ship-sailing people of Tarshish, and all their young lions, whoever they are, will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and good, to take great plunder? All we can think of is you don't want to eradicate God's people. Maybe you're just coming down there to rob them of everything that they have. The question is always asked, all right, who are these guys? I mean, we know those nations that are involved in the attack, but who are these guys that are sitting on the sidelines, critical of it, but uh, not actually involved. And so we do exactly the same thing. We look at Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. All their young lions is kind of hard to define because if you think about it, there's no indication in the table of nations who the young lions are, and Tarshish isn't mentioned anywhere, at least in the book of Genesis. Sheba Historically, this has been the Sabean kingdom, and it's modern Yemen today. Dedan is modern Saudi Arabia and those nations surrounding it. The UAE, Kuwait, Qatar, if you look at the map, it's that down there around the uh, Persian Gulf area. Tarshish, of course, uh, historically has been known as traders of tin, and scholars have um, isolated that down to basically two countries to Great Britain today, or possibly even Spain. And the young lions are the colonies or trading partners of Tarshish. The colonies are trading partners of Great Britain and possibly Spain. And if you think about that, other than Australia, who doesn't really figure in at all, the largest of these countries right now that was a former trading partner or colony of um, the Tarshish area is the United States. Plus, what is the national seal of Great Britain? Do you know? It is a lion. Ours is an eagle. Theirs is a lion. And so it's the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions, the offspring from that. And this is one of those indications that possibly you want to know where the United States ends up in end-time eschatology this could be a reference to it here. I will go ahead and tip my hat and give you the second reference. If you want to turn to Ezekiel 39, we will delve into this more to see how well we fare during something like this. Ezekiel 39 talks about the actual judgment that takes place on uh, Gog and his confederation and uh, the aftermath of that. But you will notice that... Uh, well, let me just read this verse. We'll begin at verse 1, Ezekiel 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Second time, two chapters, he's talked about that. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand. Another word for that is a launcher and cause the arrows, or a projectile, to fall out of your right hand. Don't get trapped in the imagery here. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the people who are with you. Remember October 7th. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field, to be devoured. You shall fall in the open fields, for I have spoken, says the Lord your God. And... Here's the verse. I will send fire out of a fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Another group of people who has been protected from world wars because they live in a nation surrounded by coastlands. This could possibly be another reference to the United States. Then they, including the country who lives in security by the coastlands, will know that I am the Lord. So back to Ezekiel 38, if you will. We will delve into that a little bit more probably next time.
what happens next is God begins to pronounce his judgment against Gog in this Gog and Magog invasion. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus saith the Lord, on that day when my people Israel dwell dwell safely, will you not know it? Don't you recognize it? Who their protector is? They are still the apple of my eye, even though they're a secular nation. Verse 15 and 16. Then you will come from your place out of the far north. Literally, uh, a little translation of this would be from the remotest parts of the north. Get a map, go straight north. What do you run into? Russia. Moscow, pretty much. You and many people with you, all of them riding horses, a great company plus a mighty army, or and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud. You will cover the land, and it will be in the latter days that this happens when I, God's action, will bring you against my land. I am bringing you against Israel. I put a hook in your jaw to bring you here. And why am I doing this? So that the nations may know me, says God, when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. This is exactly what God did with Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9. Thus saith the Lord God, Are you he, Gog, of whom I have spoken in former days by my servant the prophets of Israel? who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you, Gog, against them. So there were some sort of prophets that had prophesied to the children of Israel that at some point in time in the future that uh, God was going to bring this Gog against Israel and destroy him on the mountains. We couldn't figure out where that happened prior until we looked at the Septuagint translation of Amos chapter 7 that we did last week. All of this fits perfectly into end-time prophecy. Verses 18 and continues, continuing talks about uh, what that judgment will actually be like. I'm, uh, I'm going to flip through all this as a precursor to invite you to come back next week and see the rest of this, but I do want to bring it to the very end here. When we get to chapter 39, um, it talks about what this actual war is going to be like. And uh, it uh, uh, talks about possibly God sending down fire from heaven, not only on Magog, but also on the United States, maybe judging us for our sins at that particular point in time. Chapter 39 gives an indication, two places in Scripture that talks about the use of what we would determine nuclear weapons. This is actually one of them because what happens takes seven months to clean up the land and they have areas, almost sounds like it's contaminated, when they would go by and see a man's bones because the flesh has been burned off or picked off his bones. They would put a marker there, then send the special guys that would come out and actually bury that person. And the the energy that was left from uh, whatever that aftermath was, talked about was enough to power Israel for seven years, which is one of the reasons why it probably doesn't happen during the tribulation period because now we're powering you know, Israel with the leftover energy from the weapons that are being burned, even into the millennial reign of Christ. That makes no sense at all. So that's why there's another indication this happens prior to that. This is the second reference to um, a nuclear holocaust. And it's one of the bombs that they have developed now that... Uh, what they do is they want to drop these highly radioactive bombs on, let's say, a mechanized unit, and so that the people would actually be destroyed, but then the armaments can then be used by the opposing army and turn around and fight for them. And here's what it talks about in Zechariah chapter 14, dealing with what God is someday going to do to those people who invade his land. It says, and this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. And here's what it's going to look like. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouth. And it continues. And it shall come to pass, and in that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them. One of the things that you'll see in, the, in Ezekiel chapter 38 
the verses we're not going to look at today and talk about next week, is one of the confu- things God does is he gives us great confusions to the army, and they end up fighting themselves. They end up killing themselves, thinking that you know their other nations are the enemies. We find that foreshadowed here. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise the hand against his neighbor's hand. Which brings us back to our three questions. Who's involved? What actually happens that we're going to continue next time? And when does this take place? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But here's something you need to think about as you read it this week. Could what we be seeing right now in the Middle East be the beginning of this war? Or could it be just a rearranging of the chess pieces so we can see in the future when this takes place how it could possibly take place? Or is it something that is imminent? Is it something that we're ill-prepared for? And if all that is possible, just possible, that we could living on the cusp of something like this, or as a Jew living in Nazi Germany in 1939, seeing the handwriting on the wall and ignoring it, what can we do about it? How can we grow our faith to be able to persevere during times like this? How can we put Christ first in everything rather than, oh, really, God, I can't believe that you want to call me home right now because there's so many things I want to do on earth right now. I haven't been to Disney World yet. You know, how can we place him in the center of everything? And then once we do, come what may, it doesn't matter. Because he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is sovereign. And so that's one of the reasons why we've been talking for a long time about the higher Christian life, a long time about being a faith prepper, about how to prepare your faith to be able to face dark times, to not only believe God can work miracles out like feeding 5,000 men and women and children, maybe a crowd of 20,000 on you know, a happy meal, but, not, but also believing that he will, that he loves you and cares about you that much, and that you have short accounts with him. So if anything, don't view what I've shared with you, what you see on the news, as anything to be afraid of. View it as a motivation to put him first in everything. Amen? Let me pray.